This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 4. Glad to hear so many people made it back for our return episode last week. For those who missed it, definitely want to go back and pick up that Ken Gerhardt interview we posted as BOA Audio returned to the proverbial airwaves. This week on the show, we are kicking off our first ever three-part mini-series on BOA Audio. What does that mean, really? It's a three-part episode. Instead of the normal two-parters, we're breaking this one up into three parts. It's the longest BOA audio interview ever, nearly four hours. Our guest is the esteemed ufologist Ann Druffle, just an amazing researcher, has had a breathtaking career in the world of ufology. She's been in the field since 1957. She's had a front-row seat to so many big events in the world of UFO history, and been a participant in a lot of major stories and cases throughout the years. In this three-part interview, we're going to be talking about the Tahunga Canyon contacts and Firestorm Dr. James E. McDonald's fight for UFO science. In total, 800 pages of text. So as you can imagine, I had a lot of questions for Anne, which is why we ran nearly four hours. Tip of the hat to Anne for having the stamina and the patience to deal with me for four hours. In actuality, it was two two-hour interviews spaced out over a couple of days. But still, I was exhausted by the time we were done. So hats off to Ann for sticking with me and putting together this amazing and historic BOA Audio interview. This week here in Part 1, we're going to be covering specifically the Tahunga Canyon Contacts, which Ann co-wrote with D. Scott Rogo and was only the second alien abduction book ever written when it was originally released in 1980. It's been reissued from Anomalous Books. Definitely want to check that out. You can find out how to get to that at the page where you found this or just go to anomalousbooks.com. Here in the Tahunga portion of the three-part interview, we're going to be talking about how Anne got involved in the case, how the world of ufology and abductions met in the 1970s, the contagion effect of the Tahunga abductions, Anne's unique and groundbreaking theory on abductions. It's really amazing stuff. We're going to delve into that from a number of different angles. We're going to look at specific details of the book, including how she felt about one of the abductees' inability to break through memory blocks, the alleged cancer cure given to one of the abductees by the quote-unquote aliens, and tons and tons more of finer details that you'll find from the Tahunga Canyon contacts. At the end of this portion of the interview, we're also going to remember two key figures in Anne's life, Idabel Epperson, who she calls her mentor at the beginning of the book, And we're going to talk about her co-author, D. Scott Rogo, noted parapsychologist who was murdered in 1990. Really intriguing and bizarre stuff there. In short, it's a jam-packed episode here covering just the Tahunga Canyon contacts. Next week and the week after that, we got a two-part look at Firestorm, Dr. James E. McDonald's fight for UFO science. Stick around to the end of the program. We'll talk about that. 
but for now we're going to plumb the depths of the abduction phenomenon, specifically the Tahunga Canyon cases and then the phenomenon of abductions in general with someone who's seen abductions burst onto the scene of ufology and has been studying these strange anomalous events ever since. It's part one of our three-part mini-series here with Anne Druffel. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Anne Druffel, let me tell you a little bit about her. UFO researcher and author Anne Druffel dates her interest in the UFO question to 1945, when, as a schoolgirl, she viewed a bright yellowish object, very high, in clear blue skies, over Long Beach, California. Interested in Earth mysteries of all kinds, Druffel has researched various aspects of the UFO question and investigated reports of all kinds since 1957. She was one of the first investigators for NICAP, remaining with that organization from April 1957 to 1973. During the NICAP years, she became acquainted with renowned atmospheric physicist Dr. James E. MacDonald and participated with him in several UFO cases during his six years of UFO research. After NICAP was destroyed by subversive agents from the FBI and CIA, who had secretly penetrated the higher realms of the organization, Drubble joined the Mutual UFO Network, MUFON, with which he is still actively associated as an investigator, frequent contributor to their journals, and other official capacities. She was a U.S. consultant and regular contributor for the British journal Flying Saucer Review through 2004. She has authored six books and numerous articles for newsstand magazines on UFOs and other Earth mysteries, and has contributed 190-plus articles and columns for top UFO journals in the field. Her website is www.andruffel.com, A-N-N-D-R-U-F-F-E-L.com. Check it out. That was the bio. How about Anne Druffel, my friends? A true legend in the field of ufology, an unsung hero in the world of UFO research, and we have her here for nearly four hours, ready to revisit the world of UFO history in an amazing way. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded over the course of two days, January 24th and January 27th, 2009, and Druffel, talking about the Tahunga Canyon contacts on BOA Audio, Season 4. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Benal of America Audio. I am really, really excited about this week's guest. She's been studying the UFO phenomenon for over 50 years. She's the author of a number of amazing books, two of which we're going to be discussing here in this hopefully lengthy interview. The first one we're going to be talking about is reissued from Anomalous Books. It's the Tahunga Canyon Contacts, which she co-wrote with D. Scott Rogo. And the other book we're going to be discussing is the absolutely amazing book, Firestorm, Dr. James E. McDonald's Fight for UFO Science. Just an amazing book. I'm going to be raving about it as soon as we start discussing it. Uh, I'll say easily one of the very best UFO history books I've ever read. And it's the kind of book that I think will change the course of this program in the long run. And you'll see certain guests and stuff uh, coming on the program and, and shaping some of the topics and stuff we're going to be covering as far as UFOs go, you know, well into the future of this program, shaped by Firestorm by Ann Drubble. So, you know, she's already made a huge influence on on me and on this program. In addition to, as I said, 50 years of UFO research, just amazing stuff. Ann Drubble, thank you so much for coming to Benal of America Audio. This is going to be an enlightening conversation. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, let's start out with the bio, the background, as I said, you've been studying the UFO phenomenon for 50 years plus, and, you know, you, you were interested in the phenomenon as a child, so you've seen just the world of ufology develop over time. So 
at the risk of of, uh, <laughs> of having you give us too much of a bio, tell us a little bit about who Andruffel is, you know, how you got interested in UFOs, and uh, a little bit, you know, about the course of your career as a ufologist. Well, maybe they might be interested that I saw a an object in the sky, which was certainly not a conventional sky object in 1945, which was two uh, two years before the UFO phenomenon hit the public. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was uh, I was a school kid, and I was coming home from uh, school, uh, and it was about. Uh, about four o'clock uh, around there, and I saw in the sky a, a very a large um, object. It was uh, broad daylight. The sun was in the west. A large object. It was um, cohesive. You see, it was bright, but it was cohesive, and I I knew it wasn't a uh, star or uh, a planet. You know, Venus is the only one you can see in the daytime, mm-hmm. because by the age of nine, I had been studying uh, adult books in astronomy. Mm-hmm. And so I, I watched this thing for an hour and a half. And it was uh, very, very high. It seemed very, very high. And the, the war was still going on uh, over in the Pacific, you see, with Japan. Mm-hmm. And so I took, I, I brought my mother out to see the thing. And she suggested, well, it might be, uh, you know, a part of the balloon defenses, because we lived in Long Beach, California, which was an important port city. Yeah, I knew that it wasn't that because I knew there were no balloon defenses. But I think she was just trying to uh, to give me an answer, and so she went in to cook dinner. And I continued <laughs> to watch the thing for an hour and a half. It moved very slowly from the north northeast to the north northwest, and uh, at, at the end of an hour and a half, it sent out little parts of itself. That's the only way I could describe it. The little things that, that, that came out of the, of the, uh, the main object uh, caught the glint of the sun setting in the west and, and uh, uh, flew off in different directions. They did not fly. They did not fall down toward the earth as if it were a balloon breaking up. And I was so am- amazed and awed and frightened. I ran in and I said, Mom, please come and see this. Uh, the thing is falling apart as if gravity is not working right on it. And I don't know where the words came, you know, to, to into my mind to express that. Yeah, that's but a, she that's, was cooking yeah. dinner so she wouldn't come out. And I was so awed and frightened uh, that, that I couldn't even go out and watch it uh, again. And I looked at the, uh, the, you know, the newspaper and listened to the radio uh, trying to find out if anyone else had seen it, but there was nothing, nothing at all. And so years later, uh, I, I discovered that this thing that I had seen uh, in, uh, in, it was either uh, late June or early July, around that time, 1945, was uh, ab- about the time that they had exploded the first experimental uh, nuclear bomb uh, in Frenchman's flat. And, and we didn't know about that, you see. We didn't know about it until, until late. Yeah. The bomb uh, Hiroshima, Hiroshima, and uh, when when I saw a couple of weeks later, um, uh, tried to understand what had happened when they exploded a, a an atomic bomb, you know, over Japan, I, I felt the same awe and fright that I had felt 
uh, uh, watching this thing, uh, especially, you know, give off these little things. Yeah. And uh, through the years, I've been in the field more than 50 years, I have uh, gotten an, an hypothesis, rather firm hypothesis, that this might have been what we call a carrier craft. Uh, coming to Earth, perhaps, or coming to this area of Earth to explore the fact that we had just entered the atomic age mm -hmm. and that the little things coming out of the main object were, were the scout ships, you know, the ones that come closer to the Earth and people uh, people see. Yeah, that so is that, interesting. So that's how I became uh, interested. And then in 1950, uh, Kehoe's, uh, Major Kehoe's first book uh, um, appeared, and I... I read it and I thought, my gosh, you know, maybe, maybe I saw something like he's describing in this book. And that's uh, by 1957, um, my life had, you know, changed enough that I could enter the newly formed NICAP, National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, uh, which was directed by uh, Major Kehoe. And that, that's when my uh, active research began. Yeah, I'm looking at your bio here, and I, I almost feel like I didn't put you over enough for just how amazing your experience in the history of ufology is. One of the first investigators for NICAP. I mean, that's amazing to someone like me who's 30, who wasn't around for NICAP, and who's a huge UFO history buff. I'm just completely in awe of your career, so I'm just thrilled to be talking to you tonight. And I'm just amazed at, at all the amazing things you've seen, the people you've met, and and the experiences you've had over over the last fifty years, so we are thrilled with the the new the new generations as they come into the field, because you continue our work, and of course the older generation is dying out, but people like you are continuing. You see, so you're just as important as we were. I really appreciate that, and a big part of the show uh, is definitely rediscovering the history of ufology, and, and you've done an amazing job with Firestorm and with the re-release of the Tohunga Canyon contacts with helping the people to sort of wrap their minds around that history of ufology that has sort of been lost up until recently. So I guess let's dive into the first of the two books we're going to be talking about. As I said, you've had a rich career in the history of ufology. We're going to get into all that and, and all the people and all the events and stuff like that throughout this conversation. So We'll try and structure it a little bit and, and uh, dive first into the Tohunga Canyon Contacts, which has recently been reissued by Anomalous Books, and you co-authored that with D. Scott Rogo. I guess just to bring folks up to speed, let's give a little thumbnail look at the book and, and the story of the Tohunga Canyon Contacts, and then, then we'll sort of get into a little bit more of the specifics around the case. Well, you see, uh, the, uh, the investigation and research of UFOs had been uh, scientifically oriented with NICAP. Mm -hmm. uh, it started in 1956. It took off with Kehoe in 1957 and lasted until 1969. Yeah. Uh, uh, as an objective organization, it lasted a few more years, but it had been taken over by the uh, CIA and uh, FBI agents, which we did not realize. But now, now uh, we uh, we know that that's what happened. And so it was no longer effective as an objective organization. But the uh, the work we did from uh, 1957 through 1969 with NICAP, uh, most uh, people like myself who were interested in the subject and who had certain skills, you know, uh, that that we could interview and uh, objective value uh, judge mm -hmm. and uh, write reports. That was what the investigators were composed of. The uh, the way I came upon the story 
was after uh, NICAP had um, had apparently, uh, I mean, had uh, disintegrated under the you know the uh, influence of uh, government in- interference. It seemed that uh, something strange had happened to the field. By 1973, all of the cases that came into us, most of them, were so-called abductions, mm-hmm. so-called uh, claims of alien abduction. And uh, these uh, people who came to us were just as rational and honest and productive as the people who formerly had given us objective accounts of things that they had seen in the sky or perhaps landed temporarily on the ground or uh, come very close to their house so that they could see actually the the details of you know of a very strange type of uh, unidentified flying object mm-hmm. now the the types of reports changed around 1973 uh, here and uh, the, instead, they were reports that people had uh, been abducted by what they determined in their own minds were aliens from UFOs. And uh, they, of course, uh, uh, everyone knows that during these so-called abduction scenarios, the uh, the victims are harassed and uh, uh, sexually molested, things like that. Mm-hmm. And But uh, since the witnesses who were coming to us were just as honest and rational uh, as uh, the more objective cases were before that, we studied them, and uh, we began to wonder if the UFO field had entered a new phase. In other words, were aliens from UFOs abducting human beings like uh, these people uh, said happened to them? That's interesting. Now, in retrospect, do you think it was entering a different phase, or do you think it was just you know a change in the way the studies had gone in a way, because I know uh, that NICAP really wasn't big on the whole humanoid effect and and, and that whole aspect of UFOs, but APRO was a little more friendly to it, and he said sort of after NICAP dissolved, then the abduction cases picked up. Do you think there was a maybe cause-effect thing there, or do you think it's all in the hands of the UFO phenomenon, whatever it is? Well, we, we began to wonder if the UFO phenomenon had entered this new phase, I just studied the cases as they came in, you see. Yeah. Uh, and so um, for uh, 1973, uh, a, a young woman called Sarah Shaw uh, came to me, and she said in 1953 she had had what was called an abduction scenario, but she didn't know what to think of it. And uh, so we went through the whole process with her and... and um, her companion, Jan Whitley, companion at the time. And uh, we used hypnosis. We used very, very careful uh, investigation of all aspects of this uh, of this case. And this was the first Tahunga Canyon uh, contact case that we studied. And I was very, very fortunate because I was not an author at that time. I had a couple of articles uh, published by that time, but uh, not no books. And I was referred to D. Scott Rogo by uh, Bertolt Eric Schwarz, Dr. Dr. Schwarz in Florida, mm-hmm. and uh, Raymond Bayless, who was a, a noted parapsychologist in the Los Angeles area. And because uh, D. Scott Rogo had learned of the of the Tahunga Canyon cases that I had been studying 
for or some years, by that time, we had six witnesses uh, describing uh, several several events. And uh, he was interested in writing a book, and he was a noted author. You know, he had 15 or 20 books to his credit. Oh, wow. And so uh, he wanted me to co-author a book with him, and I said, sure. <laughs> you know, you would say that, <laughs> especially uh, recommended by uh, Bert Schwarz and Raymond Bayless, both of whom were very good friends of mine. Yeah. So uh, D. Scott Rogo and I uh, continued our investigation into... Uh, the Tahunga Canyon contacts, and uh, we we wrote um, we wrote the book, uh, and um, in uh, 1980 it was first published by a, a, a New York you know a New York publisher a big one, and it uh, it sold very well, and then it was republished in 1989 by another wonderful New York publisher. But by that time, we had reinvestigated uh, certain aspects of the cases, and I had um, I had come to some kind of strange conclusion that uh, three of the six witnesses were able to resist the creatures, to tell them to go away, not to bother them anymore, to fend them off, and that the creatures would vanish. And then these witnesses, these three out of the six, would wake up into what they said full waking consciousness and realize that they had experienced the abduction scenario in some kind of an altered state, you see. Mm -hmm. They didn't know what it was. It wasn't a dream state. So this began to get in my mind. Why did three of our six Tahunga witnesses who were all rational, honest, productive people, why did three, why were three able to tell the creatures to go away and to end the abduction scenarios? And uh, uh, two of them had ended them permanently. Oh, wow. See, permanently. So um, that that is what got me on to uh, my, my second book, which was uh, How to Defend Yourself Against Alien Abduction. Yes, and, yes. and I, I used the various techniques that the Tahunga Canyon witnesses had described to me that they used to get the creatures uh, to leave them alone. They were simple mental and physical techniques, you see, mm -hmm. that, that uh, came to them intuitively because they were a very strong-minded individuals, and they decided, well, they didn't want to be bothered by these creatures, you see. Yeah. They did not really accept them as aliens from UFOs, even though a couple of the scenarios did involve uh, them, the creatures apparently taking them into a, uh, an environment which seemed to be the interior of UFOs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they also saw the exterior in a couple of the cases. And now, what I found really startling and, and cool about the book uh, here is right on the back flap, it says, The Tahunga Canyon Contacts was only the second book written about so-called alien abductions. That's yeah. really amazing to me, and we consider the hundreds of books that have been written about alien abductions in the last uh, 30 years since this book was published. Yeah. Um, hats off to you. You know, you're, you're a trailblazer here. That's amazing to be able to say that you wrote, that you co-wrote only the second book ever about alien abductions. Um what was the reaction in the world of ufology like to the book when you came out with it? Because uh, it sounds like, you know, you were right at the cusp of the abduction boom. 
the the first edition uh, was well received because it was written as if these uh, people had really experienced uh, abductions by aliens, you see. And this fit right into the field at the time. The field was accepting the fact that very, very possibly extraterrestrials from UFOs were abducting human beings for their own purposes and, you know, and harassing them and everything like that. Mm-hmm. The book was accepted as a, as an abduction book, you see. Yeah. And then the second book was, uh, was, uh, accepted also because it was an update and, um, D. Scott Rogo by that time had, uh, formed a very firm um, parapsychological hypothesis as to what abductions were. And uh, the field accepted this, that possibly these uh, were uh, parapsychologically motivated, you see, uh, belonged maybe not in our physical space-time, but in some kind of uh, altered dimension that that, uh, that the humans enter into sometime. Yeah. So b- both, both of those were very, very accepted. Now, when I wrote my own book, How to Defend Yourself Against Alien Abduction, I changed this whole idea around that maybe these things weren't physical UFOs and the abductors were not physical beings from physical UFOs as we knew them, you know, flying in the sky, yeah. but uh, some kind of other dimensional creature. Uh, I uh, did a lot of research and I discovered that for millennia, in every culture in the entire world, major and minor, there are stories, legends, sometimes historical accounts of people who have been harassed by creatures that uh, do not seem to be wholly physical, but uh, did the same kind of harassment that our so-called UFO aliens were doing. You yeah. see, sexual harassment, things like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, the the creatures that uh, attacked the other people in other cultures and other nations around the world down through the millennia were not uh, pretending to be from uh, UFOs because they knew nothing about UFOs, you see. Yeah. So this this is my hypothesis at this time. It, it's a rather firm hypothesis that this is an interdimensional type of creation that has um, bothered the human be uh, human <laughs> beings for millennia, probably since we first were put upon the earth. Yeah, it does sound like that. And then uh, one one of the really interesting aspects of the Tohunga Canyon contacts case that you point out in the book. It starts out with two uh, young women who have an abduction experience, and then sort of the abduction experience spreads uh, via contact from the women to their friends and various people that they know. And as you said, it added up to like six people total that had these abductions, sort of a contagion effect on the abductions. And you point out in the book that uh, at that point when you had written it, that you had heard of no other case with this contagion factor. I just want to know if that's held up since the publication of the book in 1980, or, or have we seen more cases of the contagion effect? I have not seen them myself, because there have been no groups of abductees that I've studied. Mm-hmm. This was the only group, you see. Uh, but it seems that the contagion effect uh, started with Jan Whitley. Uh, she she um, was, I think she was the oldest one of the group, 
maybe she was close to 30 or something, and the others were only in their <laughs> 20s. But uh, it seemed that um, everyone who knew Jan, or, or all these, these five other witnesses, all knew Jan, you see. And uh, that somehow, uh, a, a, I call it a contagious effect. Yeah. I don't know if that happens uh, with other uh, others or not. Uh, I don't think anyone has ever explored that. Uh, have, do you know of any? Um, oh, no, I don't know of any. That's why I, I was uh -huh. asking you, uh, wondering maybe since you had written the book, if something like that had come up since, maybe I would presume that they would have made you aware of it, someone, you know, in the in the field. So I guess not. Oh, you, you'd think so, yes. You see, uh, uh, Scott came up with that first. Scott uh, was a, a very uh, a professional scientist. He was a parapsychologist. And uh, he, he came up with the possibility of contagion. And, and that, that's how that got into the book. But I certainly uh, agreed with him from, from my own data. Yeah, it seems like that from reading the book. And, and one of the really cool aspects of the book, too, is it's sort of a boots-on-the-ground look at how you guys uh, researched this, you know, step-by-step step with the different hypnosis sessions with the different people and sort of how the, how the case developed as you were investigating it. Really fascinating stuff. And without going into all the sort of different sessions and stuff like that, there was one trend that I noticed that I that I wanted to ask you about, and that was uh, Jan Whitley had a really hard time uh, in hypnosis and, and had a lot of blocked memories and never really seemed to get over that block. And I guess just talk a little bit about that and, and how you deal as a researcher and an investigator with, with that sort of frustrating dead end, if you will. Well, to me, it's not frustrating or a dead end. To me, it's just objective data. If a, a person cannot recall, you know, things during, uh, and, and the hypnotists we used were very, very fine. They were, they were scientific uh, and doctors. If, if the person cannot, cannot recall that is because of that person's own mind or possibly because of the experience itself uh, that it was not clear enough to her at the time it happened you see yeah it it doesn't it's not frustrating to me it's just it's just a, an interesting part uh, of the data of that particular witness yeah Okay, yeah, I didn't mean to uh, project frustration onto you. It was just how I... Oh, no. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that was... right. that's fine. Okay, yeah, that's just how I was sort of viewing it as I was reading it because it was... that's how it came up to me, you know. It's like, oh, no, we can't get, can't get through this block here. Um, okay. You can't always, with hypnosis, you can, uh, often you cannot get through a block. Uh, this is not generally known, I don't think. But if you have a very good professional hypnotist, they they try various little ways to get through the block, but they do not give the witness anything specific that they should be remembering, you see. Yeah. And this is the trouble with hypnosis done in the field today. There is something called telepathic communication that occurs during hypnosis between the hypnotee and the hypnotist. And if the hypnotist has in his own mind that alien abductions really are physical, that they really occur, this can get into the mind of the person he's hypnotizing or she is hypnotizing. And they come out with information that they think the hypnotist wants to hear. 
Wow. You see, a lot of a lot of hypnotists don't don't realize this. This is why you have to use the most objective, professional, experienced hypnotists, which which we did. Yeah, that raises an, an interesting question that I was going to ask you here, and that's just that. It sounds like you were doing a lot of the pioneering early sort of work in abductions, at least as far as, you know, this hypnosis stuff goes. And, and, and uh, a lot of the people you had doing the hypnosis, while some of them were interested in UFOs, this was like way before hypnosis and abductions became like a hand-in-hand thing. And I was, exactly, yes. And you kind of already alluded to your, your take on this, but I guess extrapolate a little more. If you think that, you know, the use of hypnosis in abduction research has progressed or regressed, uh, you know, in the last 30 years since since the book came out and since you guys were doing your research. I believe it has regressed. I believe that uh, there, there are uh, many researchers now who go into abduction because they think that it actually occurs, uh, you know, perpetrated by physical aliens from physical UFOs. They are convinced uh, that in their own mind that these scenarios are actually experienced in real time, in wake, full waking consciousness, which they are not. Uh, perhaps maybe one or two has been experienced in waking consciousness of, uh, of the thousands and thousands that we have. Uh, it, this, is not, this is not generally accepted in the field, uh, in, in the part of the field, that is studies uh, so-called alien abductions, that they are convinced that alien abduction is a part of the UFO phenomenon and that these uh, these creatures are actually doing uh, these things to humans. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the kind of frustrating parts, I think, about ufology nowadays is just how entrenched abductions is into the world of UFOs. And, and sort of a good example of that, I think, is something that I remarked about to somebody quite a while ago, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with the, the Peter Jennings the ABC UFO special they had about four years ago or so, but it was about a two-hour special, and then they devoted about 20 minutes in it to abductions, and I thought that was kind of a little confusing. I don't, I'm not a big fan of abductions being so entrenched into the world of ufology. A, a little more separation I'd like to see. And it feels like a lot of people nowadays talk about the ETH. Well, obviously they were talking about it back during the NICAP days too, but in contemporary times, there's a little bit of a backlash to the ETH being the standby, I guess you could say, uh, for what is behind the UFO phenomenon, and in a way it sounds like the ETH thing has had the same effect on abductions. Yes, yes. Uh, the the public, unfortunately, has been uh, led, led to believe that abductions is part of the ETH. And to me, it is not. It is a separate phenomenon from the UFO phenomenon. Yeah. Absolutely separate. Except in, you know, possibly in a case like Betty and Barney Hill uh, or Travis Walton, possibly. Those two I will uh, leave, you know, leave to the future. But um, those are the only two that seem to me to have very good objective data in them that possibly they were taken aboard uh, UFOs. Okay. And and one chapter in the book that, that I found interesting because I live in an area close to uh, sort of a paranormal hotspot. I live near the Bridgewater Triangle here in Massachusetts, which is a reputed paranormal hotspot. And uh, you point out in the book that the Tahunga Canyon 
is also a paranormal hotspot, and you, you title it in the chapter, the Tahunga UFO Milieu. And I found that really interesting because it does sound like there are these hotspots around the country which have UFO activity, and the Tahunga Canyon area in California is one of those. So I guess just talk a little bit about that, how it seems to attract a lot of weird situations and events. Yes, the Tahunga Canyon area uh, and the surrounding area is noted for many types of paranormal events. There have been, um, oh, so so many things. In other words, people who are um, uh, psychically aware or uh, interested in a different kind of lifestyle live there. Mm-hmm. They are not the regular people that you find in the city. Uh, they they are thinkers. That they uh, they read. They're interested in all sorts of phenomena. Like Bigfoot, yeah. Bigfoot has been seen several times in um, in the Tahunga Canyon. UFOs have been photographed on the top of mountains, uh, you know, in uh, at, in the middle of the night oh, wow. uh, in Tahunga Canyon. I mean, uh, it, these seem to be physical because they're, they're photographed. Uh, but it also um, they the paranormal events such as uh, I think that abduction scenarios are. Uh, occur to m- many kinds of paranormal events. And uh, the abduction scenarios, I would think possibly they happened to a whole group of young women uh, because they lived where where they did and they were the kind of people who were not uh, a general population, you see. Yeah. They, they like to live alone and uh, have their own lifestyle and things like this. And, and I think that's why we had a group of them there. Interesting. Okay. And uh, that's a perfect segue into the next question I was going to ask you, the next point I was going to make. And uh, I had been thinking the same thing throughout the book, and then it was refreshing because then when we got to your conclusions at the end, you actually brought up exactly what I had been thinking throughout the book. Uh, I'll try and phrase this question the best way I can. It was well known during that time about the Betty and Barney Hill case, And Stan Friedman likes to point out that despite what the critics say, Betty and Barney Hill were a very atypical couple of the time uh, with uh, a black man and a white woman, an interracial couple. And then the people in the Tahunga Canyon case, they were living in an alternative lifestyle as well. Uh, And that's sort of what you talk about a little bit at the end of the book, that there was maybe the question of, is this alternative lifestyle or people that are sort of atypical to what is, you know, the cultural norm, are they more prone to abductions because that's what the intelligence behind the abductions is interested in looking at? I'm trying to recall exactly how you how you uh, interpreted that sort of hypothesis, I guess you could say, in the book, and, and what did you think of that idea? Because I know you brought it up at the end of the book, and, and given how many abduction cases we've seen since uh, the late 70s when these cases were being investigated, do you think this observation has meted out or do you think that, you know, abductions just run the gamut of all different sort of families and people and lifestyles? Well, I, I think they probably just run the gamut, or, or at least uh, the, this phenomenon, this abductive phenomenon, tries to contact all sorts of people, but that uh, most people are able to fend them off or to resist them and say, you know, go away and, and bring themselves back to full waking consciousness where the creature vanishes. Mm-hmm. I think they try all sorts of uh, different lifestyles, different people, different uh, you know, different cultures. Yes, 
uh, we did not specify the alternative lifestyle that that we were speaking of, uh, but uh, we did not want to to offend anyone at that time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, people reading it, um, reading the book, can draw their own conclusions, and I, I do not want to specify. That's fine. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't trying to get into specifics, and I. No, I, I know you weren't. Uh, on, <laughs> um, yeah, I just wanted to give you props for going there in the book. You know, because like I said, I had been sort of it had been in the back of my mind while I was reading the book, and I was pleasantly surprised to see that you uh, tackled what was such a potentially sticky subject. So, uh, you know, hats off to you there, and I think you're right probably that it was just maybe coincidence that the Betty and Barney Hill and then this case involved, uh, you know, atypical-type couples and people like that. Yes, that's very interesting. Uh-huh. That had not occurred to me. Very interesting. One of the weird aspects of the Tahunga case was Sarah Shaw's cancer cure, which she alleged that she received from the extraterrestrials that abducted her, uh, ostensibly. And the the cancer cure was to douse the cancer with vinegar. And there's quite a lot in the book about that whole thing and the whole cancer cure and how she got it and how, you know, uh, a doctor there in, in California had experimented a little bit with it. And I guess I just wanted to ask you about the cancer cure at has anything come up since then that, that adds any credence to that? Or because towards the end of the book, or when you rehash the whole cancer cure thing, it sounds like uh, that, that it was not an effective cure for cancer, but then there are other elements which kind of suggest that it might have helped her with, with skin lesions and stuff like that. But I found it very interesting in general because it was information that came from the alternative source, whatever it is, uh, behind the abductions. So trying to throw this into a question here. Talk a little bit about the cancer cure and, and your thoughts on that as it developed throughout your investigation into the Tonga case. When I first interviewed uh, Sarah Shaw, she had no memory of what had happened. But when she was hypnotized, she came out fully with uh, what, was, what she determined was full memory, mm -hmm. you see. And it included the fact that the aliens, who were uh, quite kind... Uh, in various aspects, gave her a cancer cure during a conference she had with them in uh, one part of the ship. And at first, she would not share what the cancer cure was. Uh, then after she uh, she left uh, the other um, witnesses and took on her own life uh, up north in uh, California, um, changed her life entirely, she... Uh, began to share this with medical experts that she grew to know up there. And uh, this is how the experimentations were done. Uh, but um, it, it, according to her, it did, uh, she did not share what the cancer cure actually was until much later in our relationship, you see, yeah. after several, several interviews, after she had moved up. Uh, she she shared uh, what it was and what she was doing with it, and uh, I I'm an alternative um, a cure person myself. I don't take pharmaceuticals. I I use alternative cures, and I I know that uh, vinegar is uh, specified by several several sources of alternative healing as uh, being useful for uh, certain types of cancer. But, of course, I've never used it myself. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if this came from Sarah 
or if it was general knowledge among uh, alternative uh, uh, healing doctors at the time, and she uh, possibly just it just came into her mind during the hypnosis. I, I don't know. Now you provide updates in the in the reissue chapter at the end of the book, uh, the reissue chapter from 1988. Uh, has there anything of interest you think that uh, should be pointed out in the ensuing? Uh, 20 years since the reissue chapter. I mean, I was 88, this is 2009, so, uh, you know, there may have been something that's come up in the last 20 years that would be relevant to the Tahunga case. So uh, anything of interest that people should know about? Well, the thing that would be of most interest to me, of course, is that it led to the book How to Defend Yourself Against Alien Abduction, which which I wrote in 1998. Mm -hmm. It was published by a, a, a very prominent New York publisher is still uh, available from the publisher on a on a POD basis, you know, a print on demand. Yeah, it's it's available from Amazon.com, and uh, since it was based uh, originally on the testimony of the three Tahunga witnesses who were able to resist and fend off the creatures, I I went further, you see, and. Uh, I collected other resistors. Res other resistors came to me because they had read the the Tahunga Canyon contacts. You see, oh wow, the, uh, the 1989 edition, and they came to me and said, "Well, uh, I can resist the creatures too. Do you want to hear about it?" And I said, "Sure." So I collected uh, seven seventy-one cases in all. Wow, seventy-one resistors, I call them. And this is what uh, How to Defend Yourself Against Alien Abduction was written because uh, we only had about uh, three resistance techniques from the Tahunga witnesses, but um, by the time uh, the 71 had come to light, there were, uh, there were nine. <laughs> oh, wow. Nine, nine uh, at least nine, and okay. others are, are coming to light still. I continue the research into that. Excellent. If you can see, yeah, the numbers all go to 11. Look, right across the board. You see, most most blokes, you know, be playing at 10. You're on 10 here, all the way up, all the way up, yeah. all the way up. Where can you go from there? I don't know. Nowhere, exactly. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, put it up to 11. 11, exactly. Now, given what we've kind of established here about how the ETH things entrenched itself into abductions, uh, what was the reaction in the abduction community to your work uh, suggesting that, that abductions can be resisted and, and uh, avoided? Were people skeptical of that, outraged, <laughs> happy about it? You know, what was the what was the reaction from the abduction folks? I, I'm laughing because uh, the first the first reaction of the first few years was just utter horror by uh, prominent researchers who were thoroughly into uh, alien abduction research and uh, they were they were amazed and horrified uh, by my book how to defend yourself <laughs> two prominent ones said um, well the one the uh, abductees who think that they can resist the creatures and get them to go away uh, that's just because the aliens let them think that they can do it, but actually they have been abducted and uh, you know examined and everything like that. But uh, they they um, since they didn't want to do it, the aliens had penetrated into their mind and said, "Yes, you were able to resist me." Yeah. 
so so that's one of the uh, ideas speculation that that was uh, thrown at me and um i did a lot of uh, conference talk and uh, many articles in ufo journals about resistance about the various techniques and about the resistors themselves and it was not accepted at all until a few years ago when some quite prominent researchers started to come to me and said yes i think there's something here because i've you know i have resistors myself and um i i think possibly this hypothesis is the true one yeah and now now there are several uh researchers all over the country who um who uh, agree with me and uh, i think uh, one or two small books have been written about it but but no major book but yeah. but the idea is spreading yeah it sounds like that maybe that uh, the attitudes are thawing a little bit to to your hypothesis which is a good uh, thing it may it, they're not thawing with the major um researchers who disagreed me with me at in the beginning but as new researchers came to the fore or or ones that hadn't spoken out openly before uh, these were the ones who are uh, joining in this hypothesis mm-hmm. because they have resistors you see yeah earlier you said uh that you thought the Betty and Barney Hill case and the Travis Walden case you you sort of leave those to potential actual ET abductions so would you say that in your opinion that the vast majority of what people think are abductions are actually uh this alternative sort of idea that you've put forth uh yes uh, yes the, they are harassment by what the muslims call uh, the third order of creation it's described in the quran there's at least seven very very uh broad uh, parts of the quran that describe what they call jinns and uh, the things that jinns do to human beings muslims uh is basically the same kind of harassment sexual harassment that that aliens are supposed to to do in the alien abductions you see yeah but the thing is uh these these other cultures are older than our american culture and uh as the american culture grew there seemed to be uh, not an acceptance that the legends that came with them from their original countries were true you yeah. see mm-hmm. and and uh, as as a country uh the united states did not have this uh harassment by this type of creature you see but other other all these other cultures all over the world were still experiencing it and uh, i speculate in the book that perhaps it took a while for this what's called uh, the third order of creation to figure out a method by which they could terrify Americans yeah you see <laughs> and and to appear as technologically superior aliens could could terrify some of the population of uh, the United States but uh, this order of creation it appears i mean the legends and the folklore and the historical accounts they describe creatures that that dress according to the culture in which they appear you see yeah and and they behave in ways that are acceptable to the culture in which they appear and or that- or understandable to the culture mm-hmm. 
but uh, they do not appear as technologically superior UFO aliens, you see. Yeah. Only yeah. here. Exactly, yeah. Just to sort of clarify and flesh this out a little bit, now, in light of that, what's your take on the UFO phenomenon? We've kind of established that you think that they should be separate, and I agree with you on that. So do you think that there's, in addition to this third order of creation that you're talking about that's harassing the human race, in addition to that, there's also the UFO phenomenon that, you know, we still don't really quite know, but it is more of a nuts and bolts phenomenon? Uh, I would uh, hypothesize uh, rather mildly that it is a nuts and bolts phenomenon. Uh, extraterrestrial craft, which are unidentified flying objects to us, from extraterrestrial sources, uh, scouting out our world. It, it's not. It's not just been you know since the 1945 that these um, unidentified flying objects have been around. That yeah. they they seem to have been around since the, the beginning of humanity, but not not as uh, frequently or as intensely as they are at this time. Yeah. So to quote James McDonald, maybe you'd say it's uh, the ETH, the least unsatisfactory hypothesis. Uh, yes, yes, he was a very, very mild hypothesis, yes, yeah. but it was still a hypothesis. Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll get into that in a moment. You kind of bring up an idea that I discussed uh, with a previous guest, although I don't know if he'll, he'll, his episode will be posted yet uh, by the time people hear this, but just sort of how the UFO phenomenon seems to have changed over the last hundred years, where it started out as airships, and then it was like the Foo Fighters, and then it was the cigar shapes, and, you know, nowadays it's like the triangles. It seems like the... UFO phenomenon is, is shifting in a lot of ways similar to how you're describing. So do you think it's possible that the third element of creation, I think, is how you described it? Do you think that's also uh, orchestrating some UFO events as well? The the order of creation that, that uh, the Quran talks about, and which is described in other ways by other cultures, that is a parapsychological and paraphysical phenomenon. I don't know, you know, whether or not they are presenting themselves as just uh, unidentified uh, flying objects. Uh, so, some researchers are beginning to go into that hypothesis, that perhaps the entire UFO phenomenon is a parapsychological question. Yeah. Uh, I, I, uh, I do not uh, think that way, no. Okay. Because of what I've seen myself, you see. Yeah. I've, se I've seen uh, two, two UFOs. And one, well, I guess both carrier craft, but uh, years and years apart. And they were purely physical, and I was purely in full waking consciousness. I don't know if a if a paraphysical order of creation had you know put them in the sky for me to see or not. Yeah, we may never know. That's <laughs> that, that's right. Uh, my mind is open to to anything that can be proven scientifically. Exactly. So that's the problem. <laughs> but we have proven uh, there is uh, good empirical evidence that these things are physical, you know, from pictures, from radar, mm -hmm. uh, you know, from, from certain other technology that we have, that they are physical uh, when they are perceived yeah. Yeah, in, in the sky. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely some serious evidence to that. One sort of follow-up to the players in the Tohunga Canyon contacts... Uh, that I want to ask you about was there's always this sort of generational uh, situation involving abductions where it seems like uh, it passes down from one generation to the next. 
And I know that in one of the incidents, uh, it was Emily and I think it was Jan. And they were in the car and Emily's son was in the back seat. They pulled over to the side of the road and tried to get some sleep. And then they were woken up by entity or entities looking into the window and then shaking the car. That's yeah. pretty much the general story of what happened. And uh, and I'm not sure who, Emily or Jan, thought that maybe they were taking uh, interest in Emily's son because they were confused by uh, how small he was compared to the humans, the other humans in the car. And I was just going to ask if Emily's son ever had any follow-up abduction-like experiences or phenomena later on in his life. Well, not that I know of. Okay. I never met her son, and I don't even know if he lived with her. I never, you know, we never went into that, except that she was very concerned about this little boy because the entities going around the car were not looking in at them. And one of the entities, she saw the face of one of the entities peering in the rear window and looking at the sun. So naturally, she was very upset. Mm. And very, you know, frightened for his safety. Okay, so we don't know actually if anything ever else came of that for him. No. Okay. And then uh, that segues into the next question I had, and this is regarding your theories on abductions. And that is, uh, based on what you've said you think abductions are, which is this, I'm going to try and remember and rephrase it here so I get it right, sort of like a non-ETH type entity, a a, a perhaps interdimensional gin-like creature or a spirit or entity is what is behind the abductions and not necessarily uh, an old school <laughs> alien in a spaceship like a lot of people in the abduction research think. Uh, have you applied or looked at the whole generational theory surrounding abductions and then looked at it within the prism of your theory of what abductions are? Well, the only thing I can say about that is that if if these uh, creatures, these interdimensional creatures, are able to um, harass the the older people in the house and 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 get away with it that they would naturally go to the the smaller children you see mm-hmm. but but if they were resisted and fended off by the uh, by the uh, older generation you know the father or the mother or both uh, then the children do not seem to be uh disturbed okay or or maybe you know sometimes the the, the children are harassed first or visited first, and they tell their parents. And then the parents who have never had visitations like that can, um, well, either intuitively or by reading something like my book, uh, get rid of the creatures uh, who are harassing or visiting or disturbing their children. Oh, wow. Now, would you tie this whole thing in then to sort of like a poltergeist uh, scenario? You think maybe poltergeists are somehow related to this this uh gin-like idea that surrounding phenom- uh, surrounding abductions? As far as I've been able to read, I'm not a parapsychologist, but I, you know, I have read a lot in psychic research. Uh, poltergeists seem to be a, a separate type of um, psychic phenomenon rather than these interdimensional creatures, which, you know, which seem to be a part of uh, God's creation. They're called the third order of creation by, by the Muslims. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're considered, you know, an order of creation by every culture in the entire world. So uh, poltergeists, um, perhaps, perhaps these uh, creatures can produce poltergeist activity, or what seems to be poltergeist activity. Uh, but it's it's not clear. You see, yeah, it's not clear. 
And then uh, with your theory in mind, have you looked at the whole uh, alien implant part of abductions and, and how do you uh, reconcile that with your theories? This, uh, this is one of the big problems, of course. But uh, my, my friend Bert, uh, Bertold Eric Schwarz, Dr. Dr. Bert Schwarz, well-known in the field, has a theory that I seem, well, a hypothesis that I seem to think is more logical than these uh, so-called implants being produced by extraterrestrials and put in human bodies. The, the, Bert Schwarz hypothesizes that because the uh, visitations by the interdimensional creatures come from another dimension, you see, mm-hmm. uh, like uh, like parapsychological uh, visitations of other kinds where apports, where apports uh, appear, that, that the implants in, found in human bodies might be apports put in during this uh, parapsychological episode. Okay. I've had apports myself. I mean, you know, uh, uh, in for two rosaries, uh, but um, so I know that apports do appear, and uh, I would suggest perhaps uh, Bert Schwarz, uh, if if he would come on your program, he would uh, be able to give you um, more enlightenment about this theory. I think it is a very logical uh, hypothesis. Interesting. I haven't ever uh-huh. even looked into the whole apport situation, but I definitely uh-huh. will now. That's yes. very interesting. All right. Maybe you can forward me some contact info for Bert Schwartz, and we'll, we'll get him on the show. Oh, sure. Talk a little bit about Ida Bell Epperson. She's someone who's easily lost to the world of ufological history. Uh, seems like nowadays when we look back on that era, people hear about you know the, the big supernova names and a lot of the folks who were doing a lot of the legwork and running a lot of the local chapters and stuff like that aren't as uh, remembered as well. Just, just the nature of history, I guess you'd say. And, and you say that Idabel was your mentor, and you've been in this for like 50 years. So I guess talk a little bit about Idabel Epperson and, and, you know, put her over and, and talk about some of the contributions she made to the world of ufology. Well, uh, Idabel was, uh, I suppose, uh, 25 or 30 years older than myself. And I did not bring her into uh, the, the Sarah Shaw and the Tahunga Canyon uh, cases. She brought me into it. Oh, okay. I'm because sorry. Sarah, um, in Sarah contacted the NICAP Investigation Committee in Los Angeles, and uh, Ida Bell Epperson at that time was assistant director uh, of that investigative committee, but later became the. Um, executive director, the director of it, when when uh, our scientist friend, uh, Dr. Caburn, died, you see. Mm-hmm. So uh, Idabelle brought me into the Tahunga Canyon witnesses. She assigned the case to me. Okay. And she was a marvelous mind, just absolutely marvelous mind. And uh, uh, everyone who worked with her in the field recognized that this was a rec- a, a wonderful, wonderful, objective researcher she, with many talents, many talents of publicity and uh, everything she needed. And uh, she um, would have her the meetings of the NICAP's uh, investigative subcommittee, what we called it with the NICAP uh, LA subcommittee, uh, at her home. And uh, there were about eight of us, a researcher, some of us scientists, some of us uh, other professionals like myself. I was a, 
a retired social worker, <laughs> social caseworker. That that's where my skills came from. And then uh, when we, we whenever uh, Heineck would come into town, he would contact uh, Ida Bell, and she would have what we called a party. And then we would have 30 people come because Heineck was coming to one of our meetings. The same way with Jim McDonald. Uh, whenever he came, you know, 30 people would show up. And a lot of them were scientists who never showed up at the regular meetings because they were afraid that uh, they did not want to, uh, they did not want to become public yeah. because most scientists at that time were afraid of losing their their credibility and even uh, even their um, you know professional jobs. You know, how do you think she shaped your approach to the UFO phenomenon? Would you say? Well, you see, uh, Ida Bell had formed this subcommittee because uh, she joined NICAP uh, several months before I did. And she, she was very, very well acquainted with Kehoe. And, uh, they, they started the meetings. And then, uh, I gradually learned after a few, a few weeks or months of being a member of NICAP about this investigative subcommittee. And it took another few weeks uh, to be invited to a meeting. Maybe she wanted to scout me out first or something <laughs> like that. And then, uh, then I, I gradually was accepted into the group because I had certain skills that uh, uh, made, um, you know, I, I did uh, good investigations, objective investigations. Yeah, and uh, that brings up an issue that we've talked about on the show before with uh, other female guests on the program, and it kind of also rings into what I had talked about earlier, how when we look back on UFO history, a lot of the names we know from that era are all men. What was it like to be a woman in the field of ufology at that time? Because, you know, I've heard that the field's kind of like a boys' club as it is right now. So back then it may have been even worse or maybe it was better. I don't know, but that's what we're asking you. And since you said, you know, Idabel was your mentor, I guess just talk a little bit from that perspective. Well, you see, I haven't been prominent until I started to write uh, UFO books. You see, but but Ida Bell was always prominent because she was she was a true professional. Mm -hmm. uh, she had publicity, um, all sorts of gifts. Uh, this mind had, uh, her mind had, and she was accepted in the field by everyone. That's how she could get Heineck to our meetings. How she got Jim McDonald to our meetings. You yeah. see, and I just happened to be one of a group of the group of eight. Uh, and uh, I was, um, I didn't feel important. Uh, in, in fact, when, Mac, when McDonald used to visit us between uh, 1967 and 1970, I would be so awed at him that I would just sit in the chair and look, you know, and listen. Uh, I, I was not, I was not known. But, but that's why I call her my mentor, because every case that she assigned me, uh, I would pass by her and uh, she would give me certain help in, uh, you know, what aspects to explore. And uh, I, I learned, uh, I suppose, most of the skills that I had for investigation of UFOs from Ida Bell. I, I had my own skills from my social casework, you yeah. see. Uh, I, I knew how to objective value judge. I knew how to interview objectively. And I knew how to write objective reports. 
from being a, a social caseworker. Mm-hmm. But she helped me develop this into skills for UFO investigation. Yeah. Did you guys ever experience any sexism or was it all pretty, you know, we guys just pretty much accepted, uh, you know, anyone who was going to contribute to the cause was, was, you know, welcome in the group? Well, because, because Ida Bill, uh, after the first uh, two or three years, was the director. She was accepted uh, throughout the entire NICAP network. Mm-hmm accepted uh, just like any man or anybody else. Yeah. She was highly thought of. Anything she sent to Kehoe, uh, you know, was uh, taken care of immediately. That's excellent. Yeah, she that's was great. wonderful. It's unfortunate that we don't know more about her role in, in UFO history. Do you know what I mean? Well, the thing is, I have been encouraged by Bert, uh, Dr. Bert Schwarz. I, I'm sure you know his name, mm-hmm. uh, to write my memoirs. Oh, that would be awesome. And uh, I, I not only have UFO investigation uh, uh, research uh, in my, well, whatever you call it, but I also have a parapsychology uh, projects that, that I work on. So uh, Bert, uh, Bert suggested that I write my memoirs as to the research I have done over the years. And uh, this is uh, the next book I possibly uh, will write. Oh, absolutely. Well, I, would I love know that. I will. And then I'll write a personal memoirs. And, and then there's a, there's a um, project in Ireland. I'm using psychic archaeology on that. I've been doing that since 1979. Oh, wow. And that will be another third book when it's finally finished. Awesome. That sounds exciting. Yes. Uh, what I need is a publisher. <laughs> <laughs> now, did... Uh... Agents all die off, you see. Now, I think I recall from Firestorm that, that Idabel kept the group sort of going after NICAP folded, uh, even though uh, under a different name or something like that, perhaps. I'm not positive oh, about the name. But oh, abs- absolutely. You see, uh, I, I'm sure that Idabel was partially intuitive. She never claimed to be. But she she realized that when, uh, the, when Kehoe was thrown out of his directorship at NICAP, by people we didn't hardly even know who were on the staff. She she realized that something had happened. You see, something strange had happened. Actually, it was uh, CIA and FBI government officials who were secretly in high positions on the board of NICAP, yeah. you see. And, and uh, they perpetrated this uh, destruction of NICAP by firing Kehoe just abruptly with no notice whatsoever. And so Ida Bell understood this. And so very soon after NICAP began to disintegrate, the uh, the mutual UFO network was formed. Formerly, it was the Midwest UFO network. It was just in the middle of, of the country. Mm-hmm. But it, it expanded into a nationwide and actually, you know, uh, other countries network. And uh, Ida Bell um, contacted the person in charge and arranged for us to become a MUFON subcommittee, you see. And this was early on. This was about 1971. Wow. And so I, I belonged to both MUFON and NICAP uh, for, uh, until NICAP folded in 1975. Yeah, you were at the start of both organizations, so it's, uh, it's amazing oh. to have played such a role in history. I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm in awe of your career, and I'll tell you the truth, I'm really in awe of it. Um, oh. 
Well, it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> Very interesting. Okay, and then the last thing here I want to talk to you about concerning the Tohunga Canyon contacts is your co-author, D. Scott Rojo. Now, I knew he had passed away, and I looked into uh, looked him up a little bit on the Internet and was stunned to find out that he was actually murdered in 1990. I mean, this wasn't – he didn't die by natural causes by any means. Oh, it sounds no. like a, a horrific situation. Let's talk about that first, and then we'll talk about, you know, D. Scott as a man and as a researcher and his contributions and stuff like that. But, but you know, I, I was fascinated and stunned to find out that he had been murdered. So uh, tell people about that whole scene. Uh, I was uh, sitting on my couch watching television one night in, in 1990, and um, a friend of uh, D. Scott Rogo, I believe it was Alan Vaughn, who was a noted psychic, had learned that Scott had been murdered. Uh, in his home, he was found uh, with with almost no clues as to who had murdered him. He had been stabbed to death, and of course Scott was a, was a young man, and I was absolutely horrified. Uh, since um, Alan Vaughn uh, was a psychic, and I had used uh, psychic archaeology and use of psychics in trying to perceive information about mysteries, mm -hmm. uh, I got a reading over the phone from, from Alan Vaughn, whom I knew from the Movia Society, and uh, he he said something like uh, that, that there were two people that Scott was acquainted with who had come into his home, and that either one or both of them had stabbed him for some reason, some kind of quarrel that uh, erupted between them. Or among them. Wow. And so he he, uh, he did not have any specific information about this. Uh, well, I mean, that's specific enough, but uh, no specifics as to how I could go about uh, informing the police about this or, or doing uh, further work. And so I called Armin Marcotte, the, the one with whom I had written, let's see, was it one or two books by that time? I had written The Psychic and the Detective and... Um, Past life, future growth with Armin Marcotte. He was remarkable, clairvoyant, and he was he was in this general area of Southern California. So I called Armin Marcotte, and he gave me a couple of readings about what he thought had happened to Scott. And uh, this was more specific. You see, mm -hmm. this was more specific, and so uh, I I got this information to uh, part of the. LAPD, the Los Angeles Police Department, the part that um, covered the, where where Scott lived in the San Fernando Valley. Luckily, they accepted psychic information, although they never made it uh, public. You see, yeah, and they followed out the specifics of what Armin was telling them that uh, there that one of the people who had stabbed. Um, Scott had also taken a drink uh, from his bathroom uh, in a glass and had left his fingerprints on a glass 
in Scott's bathroom. Oh, wow. And, of course, uh, the police were not aware of this, but the police followed up this tip, a psychic tip, for which I'm very, very grateful, and they were able to uh, track down one of the um, presumed murderers. The man went on trial and was, um, I believe he was uh, found guilty and uh, told that uh, he, he would be imprisoned for 17 years because they considered it second-degree murder. In other words, it wasn't uh, a planned or anything like that. Yeah. And uh, then in five years, this man was out on the street. Oh, man. Because of the problems with prisons in Southern California, they are completely overcrowded. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he, he's, he has gone around uh, telling people that he did not kill Scott. <laughs> but but the, the thing is, uh, uh, this police department, I have worked with police departments in the past, uh, you know, uh, with on psychic uh, information. I'm not a psychic, but I get, you know, psychic information to them. And uh, they never uh, make it public. But this one police department, there was one article in a San Fernando paper about how this murder had been solved, shall we say solved, or that information had been given to the police uh, through a psychic means and that that uh, that was uh, how it led to the, the capture of this uh, one, uh, one man. Wow. Now, did he ever say why he killed him? Did, did it ever really come out the motivation behind this whole thing? He never did because he, he does, still does not admit that he killed him. Ah. But, but Armand gave information that the, this... Um, I can't call him a gentleman. Yeah. <laughs> this, this this man uh, knew Scott. He was an acquaintance, and that he had he had lived with Scott for a while, and uh, that uh, then then he left, and um, that uh, there was some discussion about money. Now I, I don't know uh, uh, what what the discussion about money was specifically because Armin could never bring out this information psychically. The uh, the argument led to this uh, intense rage uh, by this by this one man, uh, for which he stabbed Scott. Wow, wow, that's just a heartbreaking story. It's uh, horrible. It's troubling. It's troubling. It's it's, and he, he was only forty when he died. I like I said, I looked him up to check out more information about him. So he had many more years of contributions in him, which is just you know another tragedy of the paranormal field when we lose some of these great researchers so young. Oh yes, oh yes. Agreed. Now, I guess just tell us about what it was like to work with Scott on the book, because you guys were really in this thing uh, through thick and thin and hand in hand throughout all the all the different processes and trips and and sessions and stuff like that. So it must have been, you know, you must have really got to know him and stuff. So I guess you know, share share a little bit about your experience working with him and what he was like as a person for for the people who haven't got a chance really to learn more about D. Scott Rogo, considering he passed away nearly twenty years ago now. Scott was a. Uh an extremely intelligent person and uh, very objective in his uh, parapsychological work. I, I would call him a parapsychologist, you know, uh, a, a, a science. He, he did it scientifically, mm -hmm. uh, although he uh, did not have scientific credentials as far as I know. And he had written, I believe, uh, around 17 books. And some of them were written uh, by 
a, a Raymond Bayless, who was also a remarkable parapsychologist. He, he was a friend of mine also. Yeah. But uh, Scott had been referred to me by Bert Schwartz because um, Scott had read some preliminary articles that I had written in, Muf uh, in um, I believe it was the MUFON Journal and uh, possibly the um, IUR, uh, uh, the International UFO Reporter of the Center for UFO Studies. I had written a couple of articles about the Tahunga Canyon contacts, and uh, Scott had uh, read these. Somehow uh, they came to his attention, and he... He contacted uh, Raymond Bayless, with whom he had co-authored several books. And uh, Raymond uh, didn't know me at that time, so he didn't know how to refer Scott to me because Scott was interested in possibly co-authoring a book with me yeah. on, on the Tahunga Canyon context. So Raymond uh, got in touch with Bert Schwarz, and, uh, Bert, uh, who is also a parapsychologist, and Bert Schwarz knew me, and he uh, phoned and told me about Scott Rogo's interest. And so that way he introduced me both to Raymond Bayless and to Scott. And the book took off from there. And uh, Scott was a, a wonderful person to co-author with. I mean, he was wonderful. I, I did not... Uh, totally agree with some of his theories, but uh, we had agreed that I would write uh, some, uh, you know, some of the chapters, and he would write some of the chapters, e equal number of chapters, from our points of view as to what had happened uh, in Tahunga Canyon. And he, uh, it was, uh, it was magical. And one of the things that I'm most grateful to Scott for, Scott was a well-known author, but he let me have my name first on the book because I had done the uh, initial uh, four or five years study uh, on these cases. I didn't even think about that until you said that, but yeah. Yes, that's really I'm cool. so grateful to Scott uh, forever <laughs> for that. Absolutely. Well, it's great that it's been reissued here by Anomalous Books and, and people can rediscover a brief sampling of uh, D. Scott Rogo's work and, of course, your first book, Tonga Canyon Contacts, Yes, and that they can also find out about Scott's other uh, books on parapsychology, on many aspects of parapsychology. Good. I'm glad we got a chance to talk about Scott because I was kind of looking over what we did talk about and thinking about anything that I might have left out. I was like, wait a minute, we really didn't even talk about D. Scott Rogo. And then I found out he was murdered and everything, and I was like, we can't let this go undiscussed. So I'm so glad that you uh, that you took that up. The complete information about how the murder was solved by Armand, or, or with the help of Armand, of course, the police, is in our book, The Psychic and the Detective. Okay, definitely, yeah. I'm going to look uh, into that and check that out for sure. Yes, and that's by, uh, I believe it's Androffel and Armand Marcotte. Okay, all right. Uh, is there anything else we should talk about with the Tahunga Canyon contacts, or can we roll into Firestorm, you think? Uh, no, except uh, if people want to get a copy, they can contact Anomalist Books, which is on the web, of course, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's also available at Amazon.com and uh, from my own website, which is uh, com. So it's available widely. Absolutely. Uh, when did it get released from Anomalist? Last year? Just, uh, well, yes, last year, just in the summer of, of 2008. It's a great book. As I said, very strange, very... Uh 
bizarre case and, and very interesting boots-on-the-ground approach uh, in the writing and stuff and really gives you an idea of what you guys were doing when you were investigating the case. It's not it's not just like sort of a information dump. It's more of like a step-by-step process of your guys' investigation and then the conclusions and stuff. So I, it's, a, it's a really good book. I highly recommend it. Uh, and as I said, only the second alien abduction book ever written. So, I mean, historical text there. And uh, as you said, it's available Amazon.com, AnomalousBooks.com, or through Andruffle.com. Or if somehow you're listening to this and you don't have a computer, which doesn't make any sense, uh, go to your bookstore and have them order it. So those are the ways you can pick it up and, and definitely want to check that out. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 4. Big, big, super huge thanks to Andruffle. Of course, you'll be hearing much, much more from her over the course of the next two weeks. Until then, you definitely want to stop by her website, www.andruffle.com, A-N-N-D-R-U-F-F-E-L.com. Check it out. Find out more about Anne Druffle and her amazing career in the world of ufology. And come on back next week as we delve into the firestorm portion of this massive BOA Audio interview. We'll preview that in a little bit, but first, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. And since I got so many emails over the course of the break, we're going to cover two emails from the listeners here this week. We'll kick things off first with an email from Jason, no hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. I love your show. I've been a fan since running across it sometime in early season two, and have since, of course, listened to everything I've missed. You have great guests and pose intelligent questions. However, I said, what the fuck, during part two of your interview with Greg Bishop and Nick Redfern, and promptly stopped listening, when you said the words, with the election of Barack Obama, thank God. So, I wonder, just how many of your audience were you intending to isolate? I would just like to say this about politics. Leave them alone. I enjoy listening to you too much. Oh, and I like your baseball shows, too. Signed, Jason. There you go. Thanks for writing in, Jason. First of all, I have contacted Jason since I got this email because I felt terrible. I don't want to offend anyone. The gist of it is really that I try to keep my political opinions out of the interviews, but during this one, to be honest with you, I think we had gone two and a half hours at that point, and the two guests were very good friends of mine, Greg Bishop and Nick Redfern. And I'll be honest, the interview really broke down into more of a jam session chat amongst friends where I was definitely less guarded about the things I say on the program than usual. Regardless of that, I do apologize to Jason and any of the non-Barack Obama supporters who I may have rubbed the wrong way with that comment. It was never my intention, and again, I apologize for that. I was totally bitch-slapped in this email, but with due cause, Jason was correct. I probably shouldn't have gone that far in expressing my opinions there regarding politics, because there are many great listeners of this program who have different opinions on the political sphere. And this program's not about politics, it's about esoterica, so I'll do a better job from now on of making sure we leave politics at the proverbial door. The next email, a little more upbeat, so that'll be good. It comes from Fred in Queens, New York. Here's what he has to say. Great show with Stanton! Three exclamation points. Gotta love that. I heard in one of your old shows that you're only doing a few more years, then stopping. Don't even think about it. You have a great thing going. There are so many shows you can do. If you run out of ideas, I have plenty I could give you. Good shows are rare. I wish I could do one, but I don't have the time or energy. Happy New Year, Fred in Queens, New York. Thank you, Fred, for the just amazingly positive feedback. I really appreciate it. 
regarding the end date for the program. I can tell you we have no end date in sight right now. I know for sure that I won't be doing this for the rest of my life. The show eventually will come to an end. But my plan at this point is when we do know for sure when we're going to end the show, we're going to try and do a Lost-style finale for the program. We'll give you an end date way in advance and build toward the final episode of VOA Audio. As I said, we have no inclination or plan or idea of when the show will wrap up. I already have some big, big plans for Season 5 of VOA Audio, so I'm pretty sure we're going to at least get through Season 5. Regardless of that, should the decision ever be made to close up shop here on VOA Audio, we'll give you plenty of time and build toward the final episode, and hopefully go out with a massive bang of a guest. Rest assured, you've got at least the end of Season 4, and almost certainly Season 5, in the works already here for VOA Audio. I don't see us going anywhere anytime soon, and we're not just going to fade away and disappear from the internet airwaves. Thanks again for writing in, Fred. I appreciate it. Best of luck in the new year as well to you, sir. There you have it. Two emails here from great VOA Audio listeners. How can you be part of this fantastic portion of the program? That's simple. You write to voaaudio at hotmail.com, voaaudio at hotmail.com, or go to banalofamerica.com and click the contact button. And the third way is, of course, to join the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, www.tagusofe.com. Check it out. Join up. It's free. Take part in our fun little community there at theusofe.com. We'd love to have you. Up next, as always, is the thanks portion of the show. The BOA staff continues to grow, as I noted at the end of last week's program. Let me run down the list of the esteemed and infamous BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Paul Black, and Lasha Siniuk. I can say beyond a shadow of a doubt that BOA definitely is firing at all cylinders right now, folks. Putting out amazing columns, putting out BOA audio on a regular basis here for you. Always something new happening all of America, day in and day out. Definitely a place you want to stop by, not just for the audio program, but for the tremendous columns from the outstanding BOA staff. Binallofamerica.com. Make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. The economy is crumbling all around us. That's no big news story, my friends. And I know a lot of people just do not have money to make donations. And so I'm not going to ask you folks to make donations. But the folks who are doing all right, who've got a little bit of change in their pocket, who are going to be able to weather this storm, I ask you to make a donation to BanallofAmerica.com and to BOA Audio. How do you help us out? That's simple. Go to BOA or the BOA Audio Archive page and click the PayPal button. No donation is too small and all donations are greatly appreciated. Alright, there's no surprise here. You know who the guest is next week. It's Ann Druffle in the middle portion here of the Ann Druffle miniseries. I hope you're all digging the miniseries idea. The more I thought about it, it's definitely something that I am happy that we've committed to doing I think in a big way the theme here of Season 4 may be the program as a whole trying some new things, such as the dual guest interview that closed out 2008 with Nick Redfern and Greg Bishop, and now our first ever mini-series here with Ann Druffle. We're going to be trying some new things here as the season progresses, and hopefully you enjoy 
the three-part Anne Druppel miniseries. Over the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about Anne's book, Firestorm, Dr. James E. MacDonald's Fight for UFO Science. As you'll hear next week, I absolutely love this book. It is a masterpiece of UFO history research, 525 pages of text covering critical years in the world of ufology, the James E. MacDonald years, 1966 to 1971. So many major events happened. It's unbelievable. And as we noted at the beginning of this week's program, Andrew will not only live through those events as part of the world of ufology, but then relive them doing her research into James E. MacDonald. So she's had a double perspective on these events that is, quite frankly, priceless. In next week's episode, we'll find out how Anne ended up writing Firestorm, speculation on how ufology would look different today if James MacDonald hadn't died in 1971, MacDonald as leader of ufology in the 1960s, how he bridged the gap between science and civilian UFO groups, his visit to Project Blue Book in 1966, and how he subsequently ripped the lid off of what was really going on there, his relationship with J. Allen Hynek, the lost McDonald's small notebooks referenced throughout Firestorm, his view of the ETH as the quote-unquote least unsatisfactory hypothesis and what exactly that meant, his trip to Australia and the subsequent political fallout as a result of his visit there, his feud with Phil Class, the 1968 congressional hearings on UFOs, Jim and Coral Lorenzen and APRO, and the Heflin photos. Plus, of course, tons and tons more, just a wealth of UFO historic material right there in next week's episode. Just to give you a little mini preview of the episode in two weeks, we'll cover the other half of that critical six-year period. We're going to be talking about McDonald's goals for a national UFO monitoring system, we're going to look at the Condon Report in depth, including the infamous Low Memo and how McDonald was responsible for that document getting widely released, the reaction of ufology to the Condon Report, and if Anne thinks that the UFO research field was permanently damaged by the series of events that befell it in the late 60s, early 70s. We'll also examine the folding of NICAP and the events that led up to James E. McDonald's death, beginning with his clandestine meeting with top government officials the SST congressional hearings which saw him publicly ridiculed by a congressman and his subsequent suicide, and Anne's thoughts on what may have really been behind it. In addition to that, we'll have some big-picture discussion on UFOs in general, plus, as always, so much more. I've just run down a massive list here of topics, and there's still a wealth of additional material I haven't even touched on in the episodes that we'll have for you over the course of the next two weeks. It is an amazingly comprehensive interview looking at the James E. MacDonald years, 1966 to 1971, with Anne Drubble, author of The Amazing Firestorm, Dr. James E. MacDonald's Fight for UFO Science. These are must-hear episodes for anyone even remotely interested in the history of UFO studies. Don't you dare miss it. And on that note, we wrap up the program here for the week. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. Many thanks to all of our great listeners for finding the program again and re-adding us to your rotation of esoteric audio programs. It's usually appreciated. Until next week, this is Tim Benal, signing off.